This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 340. You know, held on to the property. I had sunk cost and uh, sold it two years later. I broke even and almost got sued in the middle of it. Uh, my neighbor's bus fell into the roof of the house four hours after closing. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? This is Brandon, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Mr. David Green. David Green, what's up, buddy? Not much, dude. I'm feeling Welcome. great. I just got back from San Diego. I was taking a class down there, a Keller Williams class on how to become a presenter. And I actually almost sent you a video from Fancy. there. I learned a new way of uh, giving a presentation that's like very, very solid method for doing it. And you know what? I'm going to make you a video today showing it off and send it to you so you can oh, see how, how it works. You should. And then maybe maybe I'll, you should... Uh... You should make like a blog post or video and put it or, or like a video and put it on your Instagram. There we and go. And then other people can learn there as we well. Go. So Look at if, that. Do, if you guys go on my Instagram at davidgreen24 and don't see that video, then you know I'm a slacker. Okay, there you go. Now you got some reason. But yeah, because uh, like presenting, like not just like in front of an audience, but like in front of people, deals, potential yep. lenders, like that's such a valuable skill. I mean, I'm, I'm anxious to learn what you got to say. So very cool. Uh, which actually leads us to today's quick, quick tip. It actually doesn't lead us there at all. I completely <laughs> made that up. It's completely different. Uh, today's quick tip, actually, David and I were talking about before doing the intro, what we wanted the quick tip to be. And we realized like a lot of people have like one preferred way of learning. Like they want to learn on a podcast and they listen to podcasts all the time. And that's all they do for learning. What we want to encourage you to do today is find another, find a way to add another medium or two under your learning. You know, if you like podcasts, which obviously listen to this one, that's great. But maybe like add a webinar onto your thing. We do webinars every week at Bigger Pockets. Maybe pick up a book. If you're not a big reader, maybe say, you know what? I'm not a big reader, but I'm going to become a more of one, or I'm going to listen to audible and uh, listen to some more books. Like just find a way to add a different dimension. Cause every way of learning has a different way of that information being processed in your head, uh, which might give you a different take or a different idea, a different strategy. Plus just opens up the world of education to you. So find a different medium for learning that you can learn and grow and expand in life. That's beautiful. I've noticed like one of the things we learned in this class was different people learn differently. So you incorporate all these different techniques into your speech that you're giving, like to get the people engaged. You ask questions to get the room talking to you. You give them an exercise to do to get their brain working. And as you were talking, I realized that's what happens on webinars. When you're at a podcast, you're just listening to other people talk. You're not engaging. But during a webinar, you're doing exercises to learn stuff for yourself. During a Facebook Live, you're asking questions. So your brain has to be thinking of, well, what would I want to know? And it, it really engages you and pulls you into the content as opposed to just listening to a podcast where you may be thinking in your, in your head, I wish that they had asked this part right here, but you don't really get to do anything about it. So it's kind of like using different muscles. You always want to change out your yeah. workout. It's the same way with your learning. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, before we get into today's show, and you guys are going to love today's show, uh, we're, oh, yeah. we're interviewing a fantastic woman named Whitney. Uh, Whitney got started. She had like a goal of getting like one deal. And she talks about how like she completely, and you guys got to hear, like she completely blew that goal out of the water her first year in real estate, her first full year, which is awesome. We talk a lot about the REI spectrum is what David, David Green here calls it, the real estate spectrum. Uh, basically like different ways of finding deals. And as you move along that spectrum, you can get better and better deals. Make sure you listen for that, especially if you're struggling finding deals today in this market. And then we, she tells this really funny story early on in the, in the interview about how a bus, yes, an actual bus fell through the roof 
of one of her houses. And did I, did I say roof or roof? I don't know. People make fun of me for that word all the time, but I'm just going to stick with it. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. Now, I think it's time. You think it's time, David Green? I am ready. This is an exciting show. Let's jump right in. All right, Whitney, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So let's talk about your real estate journey a little bit because I know next to nothing about you. But you do real estate, I'm assuming, or unless we're talking about something else today. We're going to go. Am I in the right place? Yeah, Yeah, I think the underwater (laughs) basket weaving podcast was down the hall. Dang it. All right. No, let's talk about your journey. How did you get into real estate? What came before? And then, uh, How'd you get into that very first deal? Well, my first deal was actually an accidental landlord type deal. Okay. I bought a house in 2002 and with my significant other, closed on the home. And about a month later, the relationship unraveled. And here, you know, I have a house that ah. I have to bills for. So shoved it full of uh, roommates and also needed to update it. It needed um, probably about, you know, $10,000 worth of cosmetic rehabs. And so my roommates had to be able to live in a construction zone. And fast forward 11 months later, I had not only not paid for any part of rent or mortgage, I had $300 in my pocket. And then I had pushed the value on the house of $52,000. Wow. So sold it. Thought I was the coolest thing since sliced bread. Uh-huh. 
in a mountain home in Colorado, violated every law of mutable law of real estate and purchased the home and uh, nearly lost it all on that second deal. Really? Yeah. What, what, what happened? What went wrong? I mean, everything. <laughs> I, everything. Uh, so I bought that. I probably overpaid for the house. Okay. I, you know, purchased it in a very bad area. I had 19 steps um, from the parking area up to the deck. Um, most people who were looking to purchase a home from me when I was looking to sell, they'd only get to step number eight. You know, mind you, it's 8,000, you know, yeah. Yeah, right, 8,000 feet and they're out of breath. So they're like, no thanks. We're going to turn around and drive away. And anyways, by the time I you know, held onto the property, I had sunk cost and uh, sold it two years later. I broke even and almost got sued in the middle of it. That's a whole other story. Ooh, that sucks. Yes. Yeah. Uh, my neighbor's bus fell into the roof of the house Ooh. four hours after closing. Wait, the neighbor's bus fell yeah. into the roof. Explain this. <laughs> How does that happen? Uh, uh, how's it? Um, so d- during the process, during the inspection process, the inspector flagged the back retaining wall. My, it was, you know, built into the side of the mountain and said that the retaining wall was compromised. So the buyer forced me to repair the retaining wall, and we used his contractors, his engineers, all of his city contacts to get the the wall uh, rebuilt. My realtor just said, "Hey, sign this." Cl- clause saying that you're only going to bring X amount of dollars to closing to pay for the wall, uh, which I believe it was $6,000. Um, the wall ended up costing about $27,000 by the time it was all said and done. And the whole entire time I'm, I was just saying, if my neighbor just moves their bus, the wall is going to be fine. (laughs) Well, of course they moved the bus in order to repair the wall. And as soon as um, the wall was finished, my neighbor moved the bus back into position and this bomb-proof wall um, collapsed within about forty-eight hours of the bus moving back, being moved back into location. Wow! Yeah, so that's a really tenuous time right after you close the house because you're just like, "Am I gonna get sued?" Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in the meantime, I met my husband, and you know, he's just watching this whole thing, just this in- entire spectacle unravel, and close the house. Realize I am. You know, I'm done. My liability is over with. And I'm like, hey, I got this figured out. I know what to do next. Let's go invest in the house. And he was like, you're crazy. No way. So we just kind of sat on that for a couple of years. We purchased a couple of personal residences here in Boulder. Okay. And traded up into our, where our house is now. And then it was in 2016. He worked, my husband works for the government. We really just were looking at our situation. You know, we're married, we have a child and we realized that, uh, his benefits plan with the government are just really at the pressures of what of you know, of politics. And, and so we were like, you know, nothing's really sacred in this case. So we needed to kind of take action here. My job also had an expiration date on it. And we were like, you know, here in about a year and a half, we could have nothing, you know, that we had built our future on. So what did we do? We went and bought a house and we started off there. All right. So interesting. I've never had anybody on this podcast tell us their, their journey started with a bus falling through a roof. So you're the, you're the first time there. It's <laughs> crazy. All right. So how do you uh, walk, walk us through that mindset change? Because a lot of people, I mean, I know you had a success the first time, kind of accidentally, you got some success. Mm-hmm. Then you got some, we'll call it failure for lack of a better term, or mm-hmm. at least a, an interesting learning experience the second time around. Mm-hmm. 
walk us like that mindset of going from, I just like that sucked. Like I mean, most people would go, I'm never buying a piece of real estate again. I am never going to invest in real estate. I never want to get sued again or the threat of that. I don't want to bust a fall in my building. Like I just, how did you go from that to uh, now I'm going to go invest in real estate? I think for me, I was always cultivated. I mean, that was a mindset that I brought brought with me. You know, as growing up, my dad, uh, he was in the Air Force. So the, there was there was no failure. It was lessons and learning the whole entire way. I also uh, was a collegiate athlete. So that kind of like aggressive mindset is just something that I've naturally grown up with. I think what I watched my husband kind of go through the transformation uh, and, you know, making, you know, looking at my failures and then taking a step back going, you're nuts. But when I logically drew out the numbers on paper and I showed for him, showed him like what I had done and what we could do and the power of real estate going forward. I mean, he just, it was just a no brainer. I mean, I, I just had to break it down step-by-step, step, show a logical pro- progression and that there's actual returns and what the power of real estate could do. Yeah. So what did you guys do then? 2016 comes, you decide to get into real estate more heavily. 2016, put a house under contract on Christmas Eve, which by the way, holidays I feel are the best time to buy a house. Me too. <laughs> so, uh, so our goal was to buy a house the first year, two houses the second year, three houses the you know, third year. Nice you know, take a nice, you know, gliding path. Uh, we bought 10 the first year. Oh, <laughs> wow. So, I mean, Hey, I mean, we, I mean, between, um, actually changing our mindset and like pulling the trigger within a month, we had a house under contract. And I'm like, well, wait, like 2017 hasn't even started yet. <laughs> like we got it. So we did one in 2016. Now we need to do two in 2017. You um, 10. <laughs> and we did 10. The second house really didn't come that easily for us. We had put our capital into a very expensive market. We bought here locally in Colorado. And our goals weren't aligned with what our actions were. So here we were saying that we needed to replace income and have cash flow. And we bought an asset that barely cash flowed after you put aside all, all the expenses. Yeah. And anyways, so we paused after our first investment. And said, okay, we need to, all these other people are investing out of state. Like it can't be that hard. We just don't know what to do. So our next four investments were turnkey investments. And then, you know, which worked for us. It got us, you know, we learned about other markets. We learned about um, working with property managers. Can you, before you walk into that, the next, I'm just wondering, can you define turnkey for those who don't know what that is? Yeah. Definitely. Um, so turnkey is where you're buying a house that is has already been rehabbed or fixed up and it has a tenant in place. So essentially the day that you close on the property, you're you're collecting rent. You don't have to negotiate the price of the property. You don't have to negotiate any part of the rehab. You don't have to work with the contractors. Uh, you don't even have to find property management or lease up the tenant. All that's been done for you beforehand. Somebody else is actually earning the equity on the house when that happens. So really what you're, you're just getting the rent paycheck. So it sounds uh, like a dream for, for, 
yeah, it definitely for us, like, we're like, yay, we figured out how to replace income. And then we're just sitting here, like looking at other properties, you know, other people, you know, successes like David Green posting on bigger pockets. And I'm like, wait a second, he's <laughs> this. like, how, how do you get on that side of the deal? So we dabbled a little bit. Uh, our next two properties we purchased off the MLS. Uh, we didn't have any major rehab that had to be put into them, but we bought them for below market value. So we were able to push a little bit of equity in them. Uh, we placed our own tenants. So we kind of worked out the property management piece that way. And then, you know, about that brings us to about 10 and a year later. And I said, okay, I'm looking at our capital reserves. I don't have that much money left. We have to figure out how to do our own rehab investment. So uh, I went to my property managers and said, hey, would you ever walk us through how to do this? And one of them said, yes. And so that's like really actually fun. walk you through how to rehab a property. Yep. Watch us, really? watch us through purchasing the property, managing the, doing the project management on the property. They handled all the contractors, thankfully. And we placed the property with them, you know, once the rehab was done and, you know, away we go. Wow. Okay. So I, I want to go back a little bit and then move forward to that point. Sure. Uh, you know, you started with these turnkey properties. You're looking at them realizing, you know, I think we can get better, better returns. We can buy them cheaper. Because like the thing I've always looked at, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons with with turnkey, right? Like people ask me all the time, what do you think about turnkey? And I can share my thoughts real quick. You can share yours and maybe we'll ask David uh, if he wants to chime in his. But basically, I always think like, yeah, with turnkey, it's it could be very hands off. Typically, I don't usually trust the numbers that turnkey providers put out there. I mean, some turnkey providers are great and some are awful. Some are like, oh, yeah, properties never go vacant. Don't worry about vacancy or maintenance. We already fixed it up. You don't have any maintenance ever. And I'm like, oh, that's not, not true. true. Yeah, not true at all. True. Yeah. <laughs> But then again, like if you're in an expensive market and your time is best spent working your job because you make a really good income at your job, well, yeah, maybe you shouldn't be out there, you know, like you spending all your time finding deals. So, I mean, that's kind of my, there's pros and cons to it, but what do you, I mean, I'll go Whitney first and then we'll go to David. Like what are the pros and what are the cons of turnkey? Well, I think you did a really good job addressing the pros for us. I mean, you have to think about my position. I was working full time. I knew my uh, job actually had an expiration date. So I was also trying to find another job at the same time. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. Uh, my husband, he's doing his own, um, you know, uh, full-time work. And we just literally, uh, time was very valuable to us. And so I knew that I wanted to get started out of, out of state. I didn't know the markets and we had the means at that point in time to pick up one or two and start learning different markets, different property managers, starting and trying to figure out how the whole thing worked. Yeah. And turnkey for me got me in the game much faster than it would have if I had just sat there and kind of tried to pick away and put together my whole system and dive right into burr investing. So for me, it was kind of an easy glide, glide path. That's a great point. That's a really, cause David and I always talk about like, it's the first deal, the first couple of deals you do, like aren't going to make or break your life for the most part, as long as you don't buy an awful deal. Like, mm -hmm. but just doing something gets you along that path. So you're, you're basically saying like, hey, we just did something. It didn't have yeah. to be the, a home run deal. It might've been a very, you know, base hit, but mm -hmm. you know, whatever. It got us in the game. It got us learning, it got us growing, it got us moving. David, uh, what do you think on that? I think turnkey works really well in this case with Whitney as a transition piece. So I know I want to get into real estate investing, especially out of state investing. That could be even scarier, but I, I don't want to jump right in off this 50 foot cliff. Why don't I go to the diving board of the pool and I'll jump in from there and I can, this is how water feels. This is what the impact felt like. Okay. Now I know what I'm getting into. I can handle more than this. And then you take your next step is maybe 
maybe out of turnkey and into a, a move-in ready MLS house. Not a big rehab, not a whole lot, but you had to work with an agent. You had to get it yourself. You had to do a little bit of repairs. You don't do anything crazy that can cost you a lot of money, but you did get the cadence and the rhythm down of how it works with dealing with contractors, what a property manager does and what they don't do. Because in the beginning, you don't even know what you have to do and what they're going to be doing. It's just all a mystery. So then, you know, you kind of wade in a little bit deeper with that. Then maybe you go into a MLS property that's a fixer-upper. Not a complete teardown. You're not building a whole new building, but it needs a pretty big rehab and you manage that. Now you've got enough tools in your tool belt, enough experience. You can get into the heavy stuff where you can pick up big chunks of equity on every deal. Do you want to explain it? Yeah. I mean, just in truth be told, we just sold off five of the six turnkeys that we had and made a 55% return nice. in under two years. So yes, could I make more? Absolutely. Doing brewer investing, but I'm not, I'm not sad about a 55% return. Yeah. No, especially because you might not have ever got to burn investing if you wouldn't have started with those turnkeys, right? We'd be sitting exactly. here or we wouldn't be sitting here. You'd we be wouldn't. listening to the podcast. We wouldn't be talking. <laughs> oh, I wish I could buy my first deal. That's where you'd be. Yes. All right. So walk us through. So you, then you got into doing your own a little bit. You eased into a rehab. You got some help from a property manager. Uh, how did that, that was a burr property, right? Was that your first burr? That was my first burr. Yes. Okay. So walk us, walk us through that property. What, what, where was it? What'd you pay for it? What'd you end up doing to it? Yeah. So the first burr property, it was in Kansas city, Missouri. I, we picked it up for $60,000. Uh, it was very competitive though at the time. So we put down cash. Okay. The rehab on it was only 10 grand. So very cosmetic, very light. And it rented out for $950. Wow. So, I mean, we can do the math on the return there. But uh, for me, that was kind of a slam dunk because I was like, okay, we're not really getting, we're not getting into foundations, roofs, HVAC, water heaters, nothing like that. It was a very uh, rentable market. And I had already worked it out because I purchased it cash. I didn't have, I had not figured out the hard money lending or private lending. So I had already talked to my conventional lender and he said, yes, I will refinance out the $60,000 for you as soon as you get a tenant in place. So I felt comfortable at that time leaving $10,000 in. That for, it just, again, you know, kind of dipping your toe yeah. in the water. It, it was a good first burr for us. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when you hear the word burr, we talk a lot about burr investing. For those who don't know, burr basically means you buy a property, rehab it, rent it out. So now you got a nice fixed up property rented out. You refinance it. So you go to a bank, just like Whitney did. She went and got the 60K back. So she paid cash for it. But later on, once it got rented out, got the 60K back. So now she could repeat the process, buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. That's what we're talking Absolutely. about here. And a lot of people, I think they hear stories that maybe like we hear and talk about on the podcast or I say, or David says, or somebody says about Burr and they feel like they have to get all their money back or else it's not a real Burr deal. But like I leave money in Burr deals all the time. Like there's nothing wrong with that. If you have capital, especially, I mean, it's not a big deal. Now, ideally, the perfect burr, maybe you get all your capital back and you can go invest it elsewhere. And it's a true no money down thing. But I don't think people should ever feel like sad that they left some money into a deal. Yeah. Like if you were going to be leaving 40 grand in the deal and you only left 10 grand in the deal, that's yeah. still a success. You know, <laughs> is this by any chance, Whitney, is this the deal you were going to go over on your deal deep dive? It was not. No. Okay. okay good. good. So let me ask you, what did you cash flow on this thing a month? I. Don't have that in exactly in front of me, but give me an average number yeah. of, of one of your average deals. So like without, this. so I always set aside capex maintenance mm -hmm. reserves. Yeah. So if you look at it with that calculated in, it's four hundred and fifty dollars. 
I only set aside about 200 of that, like for kind of play money. So right around 250 a month is what this one would probably cash flow, right? On average. So that's $3,000 a year. If you divide that by the 10,000 that you left in this deal, you're looking at a 30% ROI. Yeah. Oh yeah, which is awesome. pretty stinking good on a deal that most people would say, "Oh, you failed. You didn't get all your money yeah, out. Right? Where else are you going to go get a thirty percent return plus whatever equity you added to the property? Plus your rents are going to go up every year, so that yeah. ROI increases. The loan plus now the gets loan paid payout. down. Yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. and the tax benefits so, and the depreciation and yeah, you're starting off at a thirty percent <laughs> ROI with only going up, and that's why we right. love Burr. Why I wrote the Burr book? It's why Brandon's wearing a Burr T-shirt. Right I now, am. as we speak, because we're bros. We're, we're bros. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm very curious because I also wrote a long distance investing book. So you're kind of like talking about all the stuff that I love. Why Kansas City? How did you know that this was an ideal area? I had already picked up a um, turnkey in that area. I had um, been networking uh, heavily on bigger pockets. We had several friends that also had invested in rental real estate in Colorado, but had come from different areas of the country and could speak really eloquently about those areas. And Kansas City was just one where, you know, when we were evaluating markets, it was a market that was appreciating and getting good cash flow. So I mean, I, you can, there's several different terms for that, but a linear market. And that was a market that we wanted to be in. Um, also, it had good job growth, good income growth, wasn't heavily dependent on any one job sector. So good variation of jobs and you know, just visiting the area. I mean, it has a wealth of opportunity there. That was, was this Kansas City, Missouri or Kansas City, Kansas? Uh, all of our properties, except for one flip is on Kansas City, Missouri side. Okay. So how do you know in an area like this, like you're, you're in Denver, which is not a, you know, quick afternoon drive over to Kansas City. So like you're a little ways away from this. Uh, how do you know, like, one street from the next. How did you feel comfortable over in this area of Kansas City and not this one? How much research do you put into understanding the market? How much are you relying on other people? You know, because that's one thing that kind of scares me when I go into a new market. I'm like, you know, I just don't know. I mean, that could be just the worst street in the world over there. Well, it, I mean, this isn't the approach that we took, and it's one that you know, an approach that we will be taking on different you know markets going forward. But literally, just flying in breaking out a map and then driving around the town. Um, we relied heavily on property managers there and realtors and our, also our inspector on the properties was an investor as well. So we had, we were talking to different investors in the area. I think a pool of like all told six before our first investment there and just really getting to know, you know, their style, how they were investing, where they preferred. And you map that out. There were three different areas that continually popped up. And so those were the areas that we were focusing on. One thing that I really like is investing near medical centers. So mm, yeah, there's always, it's, it's a good job pool. Um, there's always going to be the need for medical care, especially in markets where hospitals are expanding and not contracting. So that's not the case throughout the whole United States. So you can't take that and move that to rural Oklahoma or anything like that. But like in you know major metropolitan areas, health centers tend to be expanding. And so they're relying on, you know, travel nurses, travel doctors, you know, to come in. And those are, you know, not always who we rent to, but a good portion of our rentees. Uh, I, that's, that's great. That's a great point. I, I never really think about it too deeply with the medical thing. I never look at that, but I probably should. But when I think about some of my best tenants over the past few years, a lot of them have been traveling nurses, traveling doctors, like some of our best tenants that stay, I mean, they don't stay forever. They don't stay years and years and years, but they stay for a good year, but they pay above average rent, especially when we offer, we've done a few, uh, like, uh, units that are, what are they called? Uh, like already like furnished, furnished. furnished. Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm looking for. 
and they've been great because like they pay higher rent for that. And like, I've even had uh, the, the hospital itself has paid their rent and the utilities and all this other stuff. It's like guaranteed money. And they leave, they always leave the places so nice and clean. Like, uh, every time I have those tenants, you know, I'm reading this book right now, uh, called actually funny. I have a sitting here. It's called clockwork by Mike McCallowitz. Uh, hopefully I'll get him on the podcast someday. Yeah. Really good book. But in there, he makes this point about like identifying what your best customer is. It's not a real estate book, but it's a business book. What's your best customer or your client? If you're like a, you know, a coach or whatever, who's your best cl- customer or client? Like if you really identify what they are, how can you build a business around serving just those people by offering amenities? And so I've been thinking a lot about that lately, but I bet a person could go, you know what? Our best client or people we like doing are near hospitals. So let's buy near hospitals. It just makes your entire business life easier when you start thinking of real estate in those terms of Mm -hmm. your tenants are clients or their customers. What are our best customer and how do we get more of them? Buy Mm -hmm. near a hospital. Just makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And it's an industry that I understood. Yeah. So, is that what you did? Is that like your job that you said you had to, like, it was going to come to an end? Are you in medical? Public health. So okay. I was working for community pharmacy at the time. So it's just the whole medical arena. It was, it's yeah. an industry I understood. Yeah. And interestingly enough, before we did the first bar and probably an impetus for us to getting into that is I had lost my job. Like that expiration really? date came. And so, you know, most people would kind of, you know, take a kick in the teeth and they did for a couple hours. I, I, I cried. Um, yeah. who, who, likes, who likes being told we no longer need you. Yep. Um, you know, and our, that company was in, in the process of downsizing. So I didn't take it personally. And I, and I got home, but we had two houses under contract and I'm like, Oh my gosh, they're under my name. What am I going to do? And I called my lender and the lender was like, I can't, I can't lend to you. I'm sorry. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of done. <laughs> Wait a second. My husband can buy a house. <laughs> so yeah. By the end of the day, we had him approved. He was purchasing the closing on those next two homes. And, um, you know, of course my husband was like, okay, we need to pause. What are we going to do about the, all this? And I'm like, Hey, I just got my 401k back. <laughs> We're going to invest. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. I want to make, I want to make a point. I want to pull something out that you said here that oftentimes in my real estate journey, I'm sure David, you've heard this as well. And I'm sure Whitney, you've heard this. You, you hear a lender basically say things, maybe not in those exact words, but yeah, you're done or we can't, you can't do this or it's not, it's not going to happen. What's amazing to me is how, how little lenders know about I like, they're not typically most lenders I've ever met are not ones that think, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. Most lenders I know go, mm, yeah, it doesn't fit in the box. Sorry, you're done. Yeah. Uh, so I just love that. You're like, instead of just taking no as an answer, you were like, no, you know what? I'm going to keep thinking, how do I do this? And you know, oh, my husband, he can get a loan. You know, mm-hmm. people are always like, well, you can't get more than 10 loans in your name. Uh, it's again, you know, against the rules. I'm like, sure you can just get your spouse to do 10 and you get 10 or, or go to a global community bank. There's always other ways to get this stuff done. Mm-hmm. But so many yeah, people exactly. are just, they, they hear that lender say no. And they're like, all right, well, they know more than me. It's like, I guess I'll just give up and go back to watching TV. So the older I get, the more I'm convinced that most people at their job have zero idea what's happening outside of the very tiny little specific world that they work in. Like when you go to a Burger King, the girl at the cash register doesn't know what's happening on the fry machine. She's like, that's not my job. I just do the cash register. Because as I talk to lenders and I'll say, can I do this? And they'll say, no, I can't. And I'll just ask a question like, well, why not? They should have the answer lined up because of blah, blah, blah. These are the requirements. This is, they usually don't know. It's like, oh, well, because we don't do that. Why don't you go ask your boss if you could do that? And they come back, oh my gosh, it turns out we can do that. Like 80% 80 of the time, there's something like that or why not? And then they go ask and, and then they actually learn. So you're helping them become better. 
But Brandon, you're 100% spot on. There are so many people who I talk to and they say, I tried these three things and none of them work. There's nothing I can do. And I ask that same one question. Well, why do they say it won't work? I don't know. I didn't ask him that. And then they call him back and they ask, they come back. Oh my gosh, this is awesome. They can do my loan. I just have to do this thing different, right? I just, like you said, it just has to be in my husband's name, but we're relying on the person we're talking to, to come up with a solution for our problem. And unless you just get lucky and that loan officer is, is wants the money enough to say, well, are you married or do you have a friend that could do a loan or can you do it in an LLC? Then we're never going to get the answer. So you kind of got to start with taking responsibility for solving your problem. And then like Brandon said, relentlessly asking why or how every single time you get told no. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I want to ask, how many do you have in your portfolio now, Whitney? We have 20, well, 22 by the time this airs, I bet. Wow. Okay. And the majority of them are in Kansas City, Missouri? Uh, we had, yes, Kansas City and Indianapolis. Okay. Awesome. So what did you learn while scaling that like now it sounds like you're really, really systemized. You you don't have a lot of anxiety. Well, in the beginning, it probably wasn't that way. Every single deal just feels like you're a cliffhanger and it's so exhausting. What changed for you where you started to get comfortable where you're okay scaling faster and buying more properties? Well, so I, my background is in logistics, systems and logistics and, you know, project management. So uh, I think it's really for me, I had to learn the different pieces of the puzzle and then put checklists in place and then make sure that I could hand that off and step out of that piece. So, you know, but when you're first getting started, especially if you jump into Burr, there's multiple areas that you have to understand. So, you know, what do I have to do like to secure the the initial loan? What do I have to do to get the initial, uh, well, obviously the property under contract, you know, the budget all drafted for the, the, with the contractors and then get it tenanted and then, you know, get it rehabbed out and, and, and make sure that you're not dropping the ball on any one of those pieces. So I think um, really for me, it was putting together a checklist. A checklist is a system. Mm, yeah. It's a box. I mean, David, I think I heard one of um, you speak to this really eloquently a couple of weeks ago. It's just like you put together your checklist, you know, there's several different moving parts. And then, then you look to, once you get your checklist together, what app can you put in place or what person can you put in place to take that over? to take it off your workload. I think I, for me, I, I fell into this too. I was trying to find all the cool like apps and bells and whistles and stuff like that. Instead of just actually going down, stripping it down to the simplistic steps and like, okay, there's a little literal checklist and then I can get cute and fancy later with all the different apps and bells and whistles. That's such a good point. Yeah. Um, I'm actually working on a book right now that I want to call systems and I'm breaking down. This is just, it was such an elusive concept that I was so esoteric. Just how do you build a system? And then, and then I basically realized it was nothing more than a platform that I could write down a checklist mm-hmm. and then start to break that checklist down from big concepts to smaller tasks and then start assigning those tasks to either a person or a program. And at the end of the day, I, like you're left with 5% of it that you actually have to do. And I've done this so many times now. I have a guy that, I, that I'm helping learn how to invest in real estate. And what we found is just analyzing a property the only number that he actually has to do any work to figure out is the mortgage. The rest of it, you can make a spreadsheet or you can use a calculator that will automatically calculate all that for you. The only piece that you even need to put into your phone, which is an app that will do it for you for free, is just the mortgage. But I see people sit down every single deal they analyze. They want to do numbers for the whole thing. And it takes them 45 minutes just to, to find out that's not a property that works. And as you do this more and more often, systems become a bigger, bigger deal. And I love that you're saying that's what took the pressure off of you is you weren't doing it all 
you had a system doing it. For those who want to do a rehab from a distance, this is a big scary thing. A lot of people get scared about this. What are some of the systems that you've put in place that have made that much more manageable? For me, it goes back to the team. So I really have pieced together a great team in both Indianapolis and in Kansas City. And I really heavily rely on those people. And for me, the property manager is the key. I mean, they're the key anyways in the investment, you know, how the investment performs over the long term. But the property manager too can really help you kind of be the glue that holds everything together with the contractors, just managing that that. That like all the different contractors in the subs from a distance being, um, they're going to also help you uh, not over rehab the property. So, you know, keep your budget more in check. And then even when you're on the purchase side, they're going to help if your property manager is involved, you know, they're going to be able to tell you whether that's a good area to invest in because if they don't want to manage the property, like don't buy the property. Mm, There you go. Yeah. So let's talk about this a, a bit because I think what you're saying is that the team is the key piece you need to manage a rehab, really everything, right? Pick out which property you want to buy, where you want to buy it, even how much you want to pay for it. Your team can have some input in. So how did you go about building the team? Who did you go for first? How did you use them to help you? How did, how do you tell if this person's good or not? That kind of stuff. So we, uh, when we were getting into the turnkey side, you know, Um, picking up those initial properties, we interviewed about 40 turnkey providers between Indianapolis and Kansas city. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) And daunting. Yeah. That sounds, Uh, that sounds daunting, but like that, that's so good. Like like, we're on another phone call. (laughs) (laughs) He just lost track. He, he, he stopped keeping track at that point in time, but I had a spreadsheet, like I had my system. So for me, like, you know, vetting the property manager, I mean, you you know, I think people get really get drawn to like, what are they going to charge me? Like how much are the expenses going to, you know, uh, you know, are they going to layer on a fee for any sort of maintenance? What is their average CapEx, their average vacancy? Those are great. You have to know all those metrics because those are going to help you with your underlying underwriting. But for me, um, success looks like, how are they, finding tenants how are they working with the different contractors what are the how are they handling tough situations if somebody says never had an eviction that's a red flag for me like i want to know how you handled your re- an eviction yeah you know um because if they've never had an eviction like and, and maybe they have amazing you know tenant screening but they haven't been challenged in that way because there will be somebody that gets into you know one of our one of our rentals and if they're going to just kind of, you know, take their head and stick it under the sand like an ostrich, then that's, that's a problem. I've had a property manager do that before. Me too. Also, I think, you know, we went through this experience last year. We had part of our portfolio with a property management agency, another agency in town folded. So they, and their business almost tripled. And then all of a sudden we're you know, non-existent to them. So we had to be able to speak up for ourselves and let them know what we needed as far as service and then be willing to walk away and move the portfolio. So that's also, you know, something that I really strive for. I always keep two property managers in the market that I, that I know, like, and trust in case something happens, either the portfolio is getting too large for them or, you know, something happens and service is going down. That way we can easily move, you know, take care of our, our investment and move it with a different property manager. Yeah. yeah. I always have at least two in every single city where I have a, uh, a rental property. I have my primary and I have a backup because yes, you never know. But see that in itself is a system. You've got a, a generator in case the power goes down <laughs> that will keep things moving until you get the power turned back on and you get another David analogy. Green. Manager. 
Hey, there he is. <laughs> well, you know, you know how they say when you go blind that like your sense of smell gets better or whatever. That was what happened. Are you when I lost an analogy my hair. about an analogy? Yeah, I went yeah. deep there, didn't I? It's a I dream within a dream. No, it's not rambling at all. It's really good. I think that um, like what I love about you, Whitney, is that you make me look smart because this is everything I tell people they should do. And you went out <laughs> and did it and you got 22 properties in a completely different state without being like a hedge fund manager or something crazy. And you're like, you're just like me, just the average Joe. I was a police officer. You worked in logistics. You went on, you built a huge portfolio because you did it. I don't want to say on the backs of, but by leveraging other people. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've, I've heard that you do really well that I really want to ask you about is you don't just leverage people. You're leveraging the systems of those people. Mm-hmm. So you're not just building your own system and sticking a person in there. You're actually finding a person. They already have a system and you're leveraging that system to make your job easier. Can you tell us how you learn to do that and how that looks in practical terms? I read a book. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually like the best answer in the world. Just so you know, like that's my answer to everything pretty much is like, I, I read a book. It really is Brandon's answer to everything. Yeah. Like as I drop analogies and he drops book titles. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no, like literally was, I was sitting on the deck the other day on my front line with a friend of mine who was visiting. And he's like, Brandon, if you could just like sum up like your entire like success story, like in like, like, like why you've been successful in life. And he's like, what would you say? And I was like, one word books. That's like it. I'm just like, <laughs> I read books and I do exactly what they tell me to do. And then it tends to work because smarter people than me already figured out the system. That's exactly. it. Exactly. Amen. Well, but you can so, expand on that. I'm sure. Go ahead. Well, no, I'll just you know, bring in a part of the conversation David and I were having earlier. You know, we started off, you know, building our portfolio. We got to 10. We picked up our first couple of our investments. And then David's book, Long Distance Real Estate Investing came out. I went... I really want to read this book. <laughs> and I'm scared too, because I didn't know, you don't know what you don't know. And I didn't know if I did it wrong. Right. Yeah. So you're like, okay, I'll go to class. I'll read the book. And there was, there was a few light bulbs that came on for me. Like I, you know, at that point in time, I was still scrubbing the LMLS, doing everything that I could to find all the deals. And I hadn't been tracking the numbers because my, every deal that I had picked up, my property manager had sent me. So then I was like, wait a second, what am I doing? He's finding all the deals. There's my deal finder. Yeah. Right? Mm. So it was just like, I can actually immediately take back about three to four hours a week of my time. And that was mind blowing for me. And I mean, he, and his deals were great. I mean, it, it didn't get me off the hook for continuing to analyze my own yeah. deals, but yep. it, I was just like, now I'm going to dig deeper on his deals. Like when something hits my inbox, that one's priority. You know what's Not, great about that? Is this exactly ties into what I was saying earlier about this book clock where I'm reading where they say, find your like your ideal customer or your ideal client. The mm-hmm. exact same thing is your, who's your ideal deal finder? Like, where do you get most of your deals? Duplicate that and build that system. Because like, again, once you know what's working already and it, it could be working for you or working for someone else, just duplicate that over and over and over and, and have your ideal client, ideal customer, ideal, you know, deal finder. That's I love that. I not thought of so that much angle. more simple than people really think. Someone was asking me the other day, like, well, David, how, with your real estate and agent business, how do you know where to go to find leads? What do you, what do you do? How do you know where to put your money? And I said, I sit down at the end of the year and I look at where all my deals came from and I count them up. Like, let's say I did 40 deals last year, I believe. And I say this, this many of them came from an open house. This many of them came from a sphere and this many of them came from a meetup. And I can see where most of my deals came from. And I say, okay, this year I'm going to do more of that thing. 
It's that simple. And then yeah. you just come up with a plan for how you're going to do that. That's what you did, Whitney. You're like, okay, I'm buying deals. Where are they coming from? My property manager is sending me deals. Okay, maybe I don't need to be spending a ton of time doing direct mail and putting all this energy into looking for off-market deals or combing the MLS and going through emails all day long, especially if you don't like it. Maybe I just need to sweeten the pot for this guy so he brings me every deal before anybody else gets it. <laughs> and if he's going to be managing it, it's only his own best interest to find more properties for me to buy and them to manage. And I would even take it a step further and, and call them and say, you're doing a great job. What would it take for you to find more of these? Mm-hmm. Well, we would need this piece. Well, what if I help you with that piece, mm-hmm. right? How can I help you to make more money to help mm-hmm. me make more money? And boom, real estate investing is super easy. You've got a flow of deals coming to you that you don't have to do the work for. That property manager has a whole company of pieces to make this work. They've got all the pieces of the clock that Brandon was talking about already. You don't have to go find them and put them all together like we talk about. You just jump into what they're doing. You skip to the head of the line and boom, you're getting fed sweet deals all the time. So I love that you've learned to think that way. You're not trying to build the entire building all by yourself. Brandon, would you agree? That's like one of the main things that screws people up is they think they have to learn everything everything there is about all of investing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling 20 different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities, struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG, that's N-R-E-I-G, provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential tenant-occupied, vacant, and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit nreg.com slash bppod to request a proposal. N-R-E-I-G dot com slash B-P-P-O-D. You're ready to open a business bank account for your new property. You know what that means. Coordinating a time between you, your co-founders, and your bank consultant. Waiting at the branch or waiting for hours on the support line. Who has time for that? With Relay, you can open a business bank account for your property 100% online from anywhere. Create up to 20 accounts to organize money by property or by categories like expenses, taxes, or investments. Effortlessly collaborate with role-specific access. That means giving your cleaner a debit card for cleaning supplies or your accountant read-only access to your 
transactions. Own multiple businesses? Relay lets you open unlimited accounts and access them all from one centralized login. Okay, I'm just, I'm going off script here. That is cool. It's annoying that I have to log into 10 business accounts with my current bank. So go sign up for RelayFi because that's a, that's a feature that I like. No monthly fees or minimums, and it takes just 10 minutes to sign up. Head on over to RelayFi.com slash BiggerPockets for stress-free banking. You can join me because I'm heading on over there right now. I'm heading on over to R-E-L-A-Y-F-I.com slash BiggerPockets. Relay is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by ThreadBank, member FDIC. The Relay Visa debit card is issued by ThreadBank pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. and may be used everywhere Visa debit cards are accepted. All right, well, let's move on a little bit. I want, I want to know, like, looking back now, you've got these 22, you've got these 22 properties now. Are they all single family houses, by the way? Or are they yes. some multi? Okay, yeah. all single family, which is cool. How has your investing been different? Like, looking back now, what you've done so far, how has it been different than what you expected? Uh, both either good or bad. Hmm, well... I think one thing I, you know, getting into real estate investing, especially, um, you know, well, we started off in turnkey and so that's almost, you know, really passive yeah. uh, until you actually have to start dealing with the issues and the, the issues for us didn't start coming until like about a year in. And I think that's where our mind shift had to change is that this isn't uh, investing in single family rentals, even if they're at a distance, it, you're still active. It's yeah. not a hundred percent passive. Yeah. So even though we had passed everything off to a property manager, we'd got out of actually self-managing our property here in Colorado. We sold it, repositioned the equity. Um, we still have to make a ton of day-to-day decisions. So it was more hands-on than we'd probably like, but we are in total control. And I think that's, that's been kind of the, the, the monumental shift for us, you know, beforehand we were heavily invested in the stock market. That's where all of our money was. And we didn't have daily cash flow and we weren't in control. We yeah. had no day. And so our mind shift in investing has been more on a high level, a 30,000 foot view that we are now invested in a hard asset that we can control. We can pull levers on. We get to say when we sell it, we get to say what we sell it for. And, you know, holding it and holding it in our portfolio, we're generating cash flow. And, you know, I know the classic saying is cash is king. For me, it's cash flow is king. So... Ooh, I like that. Cash flow is king. Very, very cool. Yeah. I can't claim total. I don't know where I heard <laughs> it. I heard it from somebody. So well, I like it. Hey, <laughs> what in your business do you absolutely love doing that makes you feel alive? Like you're in flow, you're doing it, like your time disappears, like you're just like in the moment. I wonder what what is that? And then what for you just do you just can't stand doing? Well, I can start with what I can't stand doing, which is the bookkeeping. Mm, Yeah, (laughs) me too. um, And that is something, you know, we've dabbled with hiring it out and we just haven't found a good fit for that yet. You know, actually piecing together the deals and understanding that that, the the due diligence and the underwriting and the initial part of the deal and putting in the offer, I really like that. I like, you know, running down that checklist and and finding something that hits all the marks for us. And then being like, oh, wow, this is a great investment. And then at the same time, you might have something that doesn't hit all the marks. Maybe it doesn't hit your cash flow number. It doesn't hit your rent. And then looking at what levers you can pull and seeing how you can add value to that deal to actually make it better. Because it might be seeing an opportunity that somebody else hasn't seen in the deal. So we have a, a property that we picked up in March. It was another investor. It was a two bedroom, one bath home. Uh, the tenants uh, were, I believe, getting evicted from the property. So that he was you know, kind of in dire straits to get them out and get the property moved. 
and you know, her, my property manager went and looked at the property and I'm like, really it's 12,000 square feet or 1200 square feet. Well, not 12, yeah, that's a big house. 1200. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 1200 square feet. And it's a two bedroom, one bath. Are, are we sure about that? Like, is this a typo? And he went in and he was like, no, it's not a typo. It's two bedroom, one bath. And I'm like, is there any other place to put a bedroom? Yeah. I was like, actually, yeah, there is. Yep. I'm like, okay, we'll take, we'll take the house. We bought it for $71,000. Awesome. Put 8,500 into it, you know, fixed up, added another bedroom, corrected a minor thing on the foundation, which was keeping other conventional buyers from buying it, which I have a funny story about that too. And then we have, you know, we just, you know, did a kind of a paint cosmetic overhaul and it appraised for 112. Awesome. Yeah. So... Uh, that's what I like doing is just kind of taking a look at something and just being like, what lever can we pull here in order to make that a deal that would fit our model? That's awesome. So okay, I want to know the story too. You said you had another story, but I'm also just, I, again, it just, it shows like you're looking outside. I love that you're looking outside, like what the broker, you know, like, oh, the listing says it's two better one bath. So I'm just going to accept what they said. You know, the, the lender said, I can't get a loan. So I'm just going to accept what they said. You know, my mom said I shouldn't invest in real estate. So I'm going to accept what she said. Like, not that you said that, but like, like people are always, (laughs) everyone like, it's like somebody else tells you who hasn't actually done it usually Yes. like what you should do or what you shouldn't do versus somebody like, you know, David Green here told, if I was going to go buy a a house in Kansas city out of state and I was doing something, he's like, Hey dude, I I looked at your numbers. It's not a good deal. You shouldn't buy it. Hands down, I should listen to David Green because he's done it, right? If you told me the same thing, if you told me, you know, Whitney, that I shouldn't buy it, yeah, I'm going to listen to you. But when Joe Schmo says, yeah, I heard my, you know, I heard real estate, so that's not a good idea. You shouldn't do it. Or some lender, like, I don't know. Blows my mind that happens. Anyway, tell us that story. You said you had another story. Uh, so I, I figured out on another deal last year that you can actually, this kind of goes beats back into the thread of somebody telling you no. Um, we were closing on a property. We were buying it conventionally. We weren't doing the rehab up front to push the equity. And we were doing it afterwards because it only needed about 3000 4000 to put into it. And it just wasn't worth it to us to do a construction loan on it. So we were buying it conventionally. The appraisal came back and they, the lender said, I can't lend on this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You can't land on it. He was like, it has an X on the settlement state or in the, the appraisal saying that there's settlement. So there's an issue with the foundation. And I'm like, no, the foundation, we have it all certified with the inspector, with a, a certified foundation inspector, engineer, that there's nothing wrong with the foundation. He goes, it's on the appraisal. I'm like, well, can we talk to the appraiser? He was like, I can't. I'm like, can I? <laughs> he said, yeah, give him a call. See if they'll remove the X. And so I'm like, are you kidding me? No way that just happened. So I hung on the phone, I called the, called the appraiser and she, she agreed. She was like, if I can leave my notes on the form, I'm totally fine. I'll remove the X. And then away you go. We were closed in 48 hours. That's awesome. Again, you're not just accepting what somebody else said. You're saying, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to work through this, figure it out, take my, you know, take matters into my own hands. That's nah, super cool. Super cool. Remove the X. That's a cool way to yeah, say it. Yeah, you're gonna remove. How do you remove the X? That's a, that's the new phrase. Remove that. Whitney, you can write a book called "Remove the X." It's all about how to how to get yeah. through 
I got to come up with a good subtitle. How to, you know, how to, how to force through other people's negativity and create your own well, future. There you go. What I love is the appraiser <laughs> said, as long as I can leave my notes. So they felt like they're covering themselves. They're not in trouble anymore. Yep. They don't have to have an X there, which you never would have known if you wouldn't have asked. They're like, okay, fine. I don't care. Take away the X, but my notes need to be there. So if the house crumbles and they come ask me, I very clearly said, this is what I noticed with the foundation or whatever the case mm-hmm. was. It was such an easy solution yeah. that you never would have known if you would have just accepted, oh, I guess I can't. Yeah, that's how it is. Do I have? Do I have Dancing with the Stars on TiVo that I can go look up <laughs> and sell myself? <laughs> All right. So I want to ask you one more question before we move on to the deal deep dive. And it has to do with how you have scaled to 22 deals. Now, it could be that you're just insanely wealthy and real estate's just fun for you. So you love to throw money at it. But I have a feeling that's not the case. Can you share with us how the birth strategy has helped you to grow to 22 out-of-state deals from someone who wasn't just throwing money at problems? <laughs> Yeah. So we started off with our initial savings. And uh, again, like we got, that got us through about six to seven deals. Then I lost my job and was let go, laid off. And uh, my, we had been socking away in my 401k uh, at a majority of my paycheck for about 10 or 12 years. And I was, had been investing in the Roth side of my 401k. So when I was let go, there's a clause that you can actually access your 401k, move it to a traditional IRA provider. Um, I didn't have to roll it over into my next company's 401k. And by doing so, that opened up me being able to access my basis in my 401k. And because I had been investing in the Roth side of it and not a CPA, not a lawyer, but I will to give some perspective, you can, uh, I think the government rules, you can put $19,000 a year away on a Roth 401k or in our 401k. So imagine that we had been doing that for about 10 to 12 years. And so I was able to pull my basis out, not my gains, um, penalty free. And then we use that to move forward um, to fund our, our next investments. And then after you funded those, did you just keep recycling that same capital? Yeah. So we probably leave anywhere from zero to $10,000, $12,000 in a deal, depending on how we're investing and what level, levers we're really pulling on it. Um, but we still have majority of that capital. So I feel like it's better protecting us as an investor because um, that 25% equity we have to leave in a house on a conventional refinance or even a commercial refinance now, it's, not, it's the forced equity in the house. It's not my capital. Not your own capital. Yeah. I'm also better protecting the bank because if I, for whatever reason, have to sell that asset, I can actually fire sale it 20% off and I didn't lose money and the bank didn't lose money. But I feel like actually we're better positioned, um, you know, in, in, you know, in the crazy case of a downturn or, you know, some other financial disaster, disaster where we had to liquidate our properties. I refer to that concept as the velocity of money. I think I talk about it in the Burr book Mm -hmm. where I teach people this concept of putting money out, having it gain equity. Like you said, like the forced equity in every deal, you're adding 25% or so to the deal, getting the capital back and then sending it out there to do that again is very similar to having an employee that goes out and makes a sale, earns your company money, comes back to the office, reloads. You send them out there again to go make another sale. The faster you can turn around that capital and make it work for you, the quicker you can grow your own equity, your own net worth. But the beautiful thing is it's the same equity. It's not, you're not just dumping it in a deal. Now I got to stop and go save another 50 grand before I can go buy my next house. And that's why Brandon and I love Burr. There yeah, we have actually less capital invested in our last 12 deals than we did in our first six. 
So um, it's really a powerful tool. I mean, there's, I am really happy that you wrote the book, David, because I mean, that's such a powerful way for you know new investors to get started that don't, that have limited capital. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yay. All right. Well, let's head over to the next segment of the show. This is our deal. Deep deal, dive. Deep dive. All right, this is the part of the show where we dive deep into one particular deal that our guest has done. Uh, Whitney, you got a deal in mind? Something we could dig into? I do. I'm just All right. pulling up my notes because I know sure. you're asking numbers. All right, good. So I'm curious, first of all, what kind of property is it and where was it located? A single family house located in Kansas City, Missouri. All right. All right. And how did you find this single family house located in Kansas City, Missouri? I used my property manager who actually picked it up off a wholesale. Really? Oh, I love this. There's like two levels to leverage. You're like your property manager leveraged his wholesaler to get you this deal. I'm all about win, 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 win. Like if everybody can make money and the numbers still work, I mean, who cares? Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. Well, on that note, then how much was it? And we picked up the property for 65,000. Okay. By the way, what... Sorry, what's the incentive for your property manager? Are they getting a commission as well on that? Cause they're an agent as well. Or when you buy a property that they give you, or is it just cause they want the commission to, I mean, like they want the management fees going forward. Both. Okay. Yeah. So he's getting the commission from, well, he's either getting a split in with the wholesaler if he okay. it that way, or if he goes direct to buyer, he's getting a commission. So he's working out that um, we pay him a property management fee. Then he gets the lease up fee for property management and then the ongoing check yep. forward. And then if we reposition the property, he's getting um, a cut of, you know, a, it, we try not to do full commissions because we're generally our properties are flipping to other investors. So it's usually a flat fee. Okay. But if you do retail, he gets a commission that way too. Okay, cool. And that's a good thing that he's making all that money because he's now incentivized to go find more yeah. deals to grow your wealth. Yeah. He's the yeah. line. Yeah. We, I want to make, I think, and we can dig into this a little bit deeper. I don't want to derail the conversation, but I mean, you know, oh, please. all about aligning, lining interest. And that's the best way that I can help align, you know, his interests with mine. We're all making money. Um, I think too many times we're, you know, we're taught to make it a win-lose situation um, just at the sake of saving a dollar. But like, if, if the numbers are there and the deal works, like, why not? Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Win-win as much as you possibly can align interests. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic advice. All right. So how did you negotiate this deal? I didn't. I'm just kidding. Um, My property manager actually had it under contract and um, assigned it to me. So from wholesaler. So we were at 65,000 purchase and then we had it inspected and the rehab on it was 45,000. Actually the rehab on it was 35,000. 35,000. Was that more or less than you expected when you? So the initial rehab was 35,000. It ballooned up to 45. So our lesson learned there was have a contingency. Yeah. Okay. And did you though, did you like did you assume when you, when you, when you first brought the deal to you, 65 K, you knew it was a rehab though. You knew it was a burr. You knew you were getting into a, a big rehab. It just ended yeah. up being 10 grand more than you thought. Exactly. Well, so it was actually an investor that had purchased the deal and started the rehab himself. Okay. And then he uh, got in over his head uh, with the rehab. And so we were actually able to pick it up with the, uh, like all the paint was there, all the cabinets were there. We were able to pick it up with the supplies in place. So it was a, it was a really large rehab, even though okay. 5,000 doesn't sound that large. It was a really big rehab. 
Okay. How did you fund this project? This was one of my first deals of using hard money. So we've funded the purchase price and um, 90% of the purchase price and 100% of the rehab using hard money. Nice. So almost no money down, which is awesome. What did you do with it then? Uh, Well, so we were all in for 110K and then appraised at 135. So we then refinanced out our money and we left in 8,500 after everything was said and done. We were hoping to get, we underwrote it to get 100% of our money out. This, um, I also learned to build in a much larger contingency budget. Yeah. So that you would have, so in other words, had you kept the budget at 35, you would have actually been out with no money, you know, no money in the deal whatsoever. We would have pulled a little bit of cash out. Yeah. You know, that's, that's one of the things I would, I just want to know about Burr investing in general is like that appraisal is kind of your wild card. It's, it's probably the only part of the deal that you really do not have control over. Even if you line up a bunch of comps, you don't know if the appraiser is going to use the same one, or if they're getting pressure on the bank to come up with a lower appraisal, you just, you can't control it. So you can't beat yourself up when that part doesn't work out like what you were hoping for. You just got to remind yourself that a lot of the time it appraises higher than what you were expecting to. Yeah. And it's going to balance out over time. And even when it appraises low, if you're leaving only a little bit of money in that deal, your, your ROI skyrockets, you get capital back, you can go buy the next property and you're going to be okay. So what lessons other than uh, I need to build contingency into my rehab budget did you learn from this deal? I learned probably the biggest lesson of all, which is don't buy a house that has been infested with raccoons. Really? <laughs> so, <laughs> I have, on my checklist, has it been infested with raccoons? City, <laughs> the raccoon asterisk. That's yes. funny. Because you know what? What do they do? What are the initial? What do they do? Yeah, what's so bad about oh. raccoons? They're cute little fuzzy like pandas, trash pandas, right? Well, you've seen the Allstate commercials, like mayhem. Like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, they roll around in the raccoons. In the like to party, man. They. <laughs> The insulation in the attic, um, and they don't really care where the bathroom is. And yeah. so, uh, was it? Have you guys seen that movie, The Other Guys, with Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell? It's like I a cop, no. cop show, really funny. There's a scene where Will Ferrell's car gets stolen. It's like a Prius, and I think like a raccoon gives birth to a litter of <laughs> raccoons inside. It makes a big mess. That's what that reminds me of. Yeah, they're mischievous little guys. I can see that they could just completely tear something apart. That's funny. So you're. Your inspector missed the raccoon damage. No, we knew that. We knew that going in. It was in. It was in there. Um, but raccoons like to come back. And during the rehab, uh, it started to rain when the roofer was um, correcting some of the roofing and the soffits, and left accidentally left one of the soffits on or open. When, oh no! Yeah, they got they back came in. Back. And like, they like to party. Yep. <laughs> and they went right back to the same part of the house and destroyed part of that house. Oh man, that sucks. Okay. Raccoon proofing your house. We got to figure out how we can work that into our system. There you go. <laughs> I think yeah. you know, when you, when you, you know, hit some of those things that you know that you can't tolerate, like, you know, somebody else, my inspector, when he inspected that house, he was amazed. He was like, if you can't finish the rehab, give it to me. I'll take it. Like oh. he was all, he was really hoping that I was going to, a stumble on that deal. Uh, he didn't want me. He wasn't rooting for me. Yeah, yeah. He was like, I had an out. He was like, if it gets to be too much, give it to me. Yeah, let like, me know. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Well, that That's was a good sign. Yeah. When every time they're like, well, it's going to be this much money, but hey, you know, you don't have to pay it. I'd rather take it off yeah. your hands. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Super cool. Great, great deal. Deal deep dive. Great example of a, of a really good burr. Even when things go a little bit wrong, you know what? You're still, you know, you got an awesome property. I think now today cash flow is a little bit, I'm assuming, and you make some money on it every month. You got those right. numbers? 
We rent it uh, for $1,200 a month. We're cash flowing 28%. That's awesome. So good. So good. All right. Well, very cool. Well, before we get out of here, let's get over to the fire round. It's time for the fire round. All right, this is the fire round. This is part of the show where we dive into the questions from the forums. Uh, these are questions that real life people are asking from the Bigger Pockets forums, and we're going to fire them quickly at you. Whitney, number one, Darren in Utah said, I've noticed that house price appreciation has stopped. I think it's time to stop flipping. Too dangerous now because margins are slimmer and worse. You might get stuck at a market peak. What do you think? Flipping, I have done two flips. I've done a couple of live-in flips. So I would... You know, I think it's, you know, you have to understand your market first, but uh, you know, you're really, you don't need the house to appreciate if your whole time is short, you just need the market to stay stable. But at the, at the same time, if you're underwriting these deals, you have to, I would have multiple outs. Like if the market did start to turn on you, can you, can you rent it? Can you Airbnb it? Can you do a corporate rental on it? That is something that we've been actually looking at at one of our flips. If should it not go under contract in the next month? Yeah, that's good. One of my outs right now, I'm working on building up my flipping here in Maui, which Maui is a different price point than most of the world, right? So like an average price over a million dollars. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, we're at probably at the peak of the market, not the best time to flip houses, but the margins are just stupid good if I can do it right, right? So I'm looking at this and what I'm doing to, prov- like, again, as an, as an out is I'm not flipping by myself. Any flip that I go into, I'm going to partner with people. In fact, I have a couple of friends that I'm working with, uh, hopefully on this thing, but we're going to partner together essentially where they put up 100% of the money for the flip, 100% of the rehab budget for the flip, and I make no payments to them during the whole entire process. Then we will split everything at the end of the day. We'll just do a rev share, you know, probably 50-50 on the, on the profit at the end of the day. Now, uh, of course, a hard money lender would be cheaper than doing this, or I could find a bank loan. There's other ways to get this done. But I'm nervous buying a million dollar house where I'm going to put a half a million dollars of work into it or something at this price point, And then the market crashes six months later. And so for me, splitting it with somebody else, all we're going to do then is rent it out because I can rent it out. I'm good at renting out properties. We'll rent it out for the entire recession. If we hit one, I'll be just fine for three, five, six years. And whoever, you know, my friend who's putting the money in, that's their risk is that they might only get a two or 3% return on their money from cash flow for a few years. And then we'll sell it later for a higher amount when the price does come back. So it's like, we're not losing no matter what, but we're building that, that, that backbone. in. so anyway, I got, I got to find more wealthy friends who can afford it, you know, million and a half dollar like investment. But that's what, like, that's what I'm doing to prevent against that. So it's again, some people are like, you shouldn't flip houses because it's a bad market. And good investors are saying, no, how do we flip markets? How do we flip properties because of the market? Like, what can we do today to prevent against that? And that's my solution. I'm sure other people have better ones than that, but that's what I'm doing. So Anyway. Do you guys think that if he's if this person's model is building in, there has to be appreciation to make sense that maybe they're paying too much for the house in the first place? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. a great point. Okay, great point. cool. Thank you. Uh, question number two. Let's say you have your property. This is from Dennis Higgs. Let's say you have your property and everything is going according to plan. How often do you want your property manager doing a walkthrough of your tenant-occupied units just to make sure that everything's in decent shape? Good question. Well, for me, I a minimum of one time a year. I would go for, you know, twice a year. That's what I'm comfortable with. At the same time, what what is your tenant base? Like if you're dealing with a, you know, college rentals, I would have them in there (laughs) every month. I don't know. Every week if you could, you know, but if you're, we have a renter, you know, they're in their, their upper seventies and 
they take yeah. three just care yep. of the place. I'm not going to check yeah. on them that often. They're the opposite of a raccoon. They don't like to party. <laughs> right. That's funny. I mean, they do, you know, I don't encourage it, but they do a lot of the, the maintenance themselves. Yep. Um, but anyways, I think it really has to go back to knowing your customer, like, you know, who's in the property, what are you comfortable with? Um, but at the very least, I would say a couple of times a year, you're going to want to get eyes on your roof, um, you know, your gutters, you know, maybe even the HVAC too. One of the things that I like to do is because my property manager always wants to charge me to do these extra walkthroughs and I don't always trust that the employee that they send is yep. really paying attention is I wait until a maintenance request comes in that for something really small and I send my handyman and I task him with like, you're going to look everywhere in that house, check every toilet, every sink, make sure it's not leaking. Because as you guys, as Brandon, I'm sure you have to have seen, tenants will let a water leak yep. go on for like nine months Forever. and completely destroy mm -hmm. One of your because they just didn't bother letting you know that yep. oh yeah that's the caulking's bad it's been leaking like that for two years and now you've got an entire subfloor that has to get ripped out so I just I leverage my handyman hey you're going there anyways say hey does anything else need to be tightened up around here and walk around with your crescent wrench and just look look for everything <laughs> look for drug paraphernalia look for signs that raccoons are in this place look for anything else that could cause problems you guys are gonna let me live that one down are you I love that. you should write a blog article I like total like these are the signs you need to look for to know if raccoons, <laughs> raccoons are there. have yes crashed your party that's awesome all right number three. Oh, this is a great question. Corey from Charlotte, North Carolina said, what do newbies say or do that makes you roll your eyes and groan? Wow. Uh, Such a good if question. You want to think for a minute, I want, if you want to think for a second, I want to ask David Green as well, because this is a hilarious question. David, what about you? I think my favorite thing or the thing that like drives me nuts when newbies say it is when they, they try to tell you why you shouldn't be doing it, but it's very clear that they don't understand themselves how real estate investing works. Like that comment earlier, I think we should stop flipping because prices aren't going up anymore. It almost sounds like insightful, but then you think a little bit deeper and you realize, well, if you're getting a good deal, like prices could go down and you could still be making money. The market doesn't have to go up. That just makes it easier. Yeah. Like when the, when the wind's not at your back, do you just stop running? Oh, this <laughs> is harder. So I'm just, you know, no, you still value it doing it. You just do it differently. So that's one of the things is just when I hear a newbie that gives me like a naysayer, like here's why you shouldn't invest in real estate, but they're, they very clearly don't really understand what the factors that go into building wealth through real estate are. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's yours, Brandon? I was going to say the thing that always makes me laugh is when wholesalers say, you know, things like I've got buyers in all 50 states or I've got I've got deals in all 50 states that like and they try to make themselves sound like there's some big deal. And I'm like, you're like a 21 year old kid who's never bought a single property. You don't have yeah. deals in all 50 states. You don't have buyers in all 50 states. In yeah, 50 I know. States. Like I get these emails from people. It used to be worse. It actually doesn't happen much anymore. But that used to be like a line. I, some guru must have been teaching people to say that because it was it was everywhere for a while. It's like I've got deals in all 50 states that like. <laughs> Like, no, you don't stop it. That was Shut like up. your red flag that you knew this is a new, yeah, yeah. it just gives them away right away. Yep. I think for me, it's just the mentality that you have to do it all yourself. Right. Mm, yeah. It honestly, like I was, I, I kind of felt that way, like when I was getting started, but you know, I quickly realized this is all about relationships and partnerships and that, you know, even though I am leveraging other people's systems, I, you know, I would love to meet people that would learn how to leverage. Yeah. yeah. I'm bad. You know, that was like, yep. you know, I can network with yep. yeah. and yeah. Then I can help them leverage the systems that I put in place. So there's a power in leverage. There's a power in win-win. And yeah. um, just to say that, like, I don't have the time. I don't, 
I don't have X in order to get started. Like there's always a way to figure it out. You just have to, that's, that's the part that you have to figure out is how to overcome the obstacle. Remove yeah. the X. Remove the X. There you go. I got one more just because I'm, I want to throw one out. No, what, like actually I got two more. One of them is uh, when newbies will say, Things like, hey, can I just get on a, like a quick phone call with you and like provide <laughs> yeah. no value whatsoever? Just, hey, can I just get on a quick phone call with you and pick your brain for a while? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then the second one was, uh, oh, shoot, I lost it. Anyway, that, that, that's a big one. I get, I get that from newbies all the time. It's like, just, hey, can I just pick your brain for a little bit? How about bit? the one where the newbie wants to jump like seven steps ahead of where they really are and talk to the person that's so far ahead of them that they, it doesn't matter what that person's doing? Yeah, you know, like, 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 I do not need to talk to Mr. Olympia about my weightlifting <laughs> at all. Like, it doesn't matter what he tells me. I, I need. To, how, what do you do to go to the gym five times a week? That's yeah. the guy that I should be talking to, right? When they're like, I really want to go talk to Grant Cardone and figure out how he's doing what he's doing. I just think, why would you? What is what is he ever going to say that could apply yeah. to your position? You know, find a person who's like two steps ahead of you yep. or one step ahead of you and say, what did you do to get there? Mm-hmm. I think that's a much better. There you go. Okay, oh, I, I, remember, I remember the last one. Sorry, I remember the last one. Is I, I actually hear this fairly often. And there's different ways of phrasing it, but essentially, uh, we tend to focus on building our portfolios, but what's your ultimate end goal with real estate? Do you want to keep your rentals and pass them on to your kids, sell them at the end of your life, exchange them into something bigger? I think this is a really good question for, for you, Whitney. So we have a couple of different strategies. Like I, I don't have one just end game strategy with my rentals, um, you know, cause I'm, uh, I'm all the time, like going back and looking at our spreadsheet, the overarching uh, returns of the portfolio and really trying to understand like which ones are better positioned for a retail sale, which ones are better positioned for investor sale. Um, which ones can I kind of, I, you know, another really smart thing that I heard from this guy you know, who's sitting here in the room right now is like packaging them up in like five and maybe flipping them out on a portfolio. That must've um, been David. I know. Right. Mm, and smart then, guy. And then, reinvesting that and trading it up for larger properties. So we actually um, trade ours up when we do like a package sale, we'll trade them up for a multifamily syndication. Very good. Yeah. The the reason that works so good for someone who hears that and goes, why, why would you do all the work to get it and then exchange it is because building wealth through cash flow is very slow and laborious. It's very, very, very slow, but building equity can happen fast. It's so much easier to buy a house that you're all in for 75 grand. It's worth a hundred. You made $25,000 in equity than it is to save up $25,000 of cash flow. That just takes forever. So what you do is you focus on the part you have more control over building equity. Then you exchange that into an asset that will build you cash flow faster or more passive like a syndication and you just supercharge the rate at which you can build that cash flow. That's the short story. There it is. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. That's great, Whitney. All right, Brandon, you want to move us along? I will move us along to the next segment of the show, the final segment called our famous four. Famous four, the same four questions we ask every guest every week. But before we get to that, let's hear what's going on this week over on the Bigger Pockets business podcast. Hey guys, this week's show is all about breaking into low barrier to entry businesses, businesses where you're sure to face lots and lots of competition. Our guest this week started a self-storage and moving business. And on Tuesday, he's going to tell us all about how he competed against some of the biggest companies in that industry and kicked their butts. So tune in to the Bigger Pockets business podcast next Tuesday, subscribe, and we will see you then. All right. Thank you. And now let's get to the famous four. Number one, Whitney, what is your current favorite real estate related book? 
I still am a big fan of long distance real estate investing by David. Oh, is that the first time anyone's ever said that? I think it is. I don't know. It's up there. It I might don't be the first. I think so. Maybe somebody said it. I'm sure lots of people think it. Just nobody wants to like, you know, flatter you too much in a, in a podcast, David. So they all, yeah, they all hold it in. It on the screen it does. for YouTube. If it gets too big, it won't <laughs> serve me. If it's just a big forehead staring at you. I yep. can pick well, a different book if you want me to. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Moving along, what is your favorite business book? Well, so I'm going to cheat. I'm going to do two. I think Emeth is fantastic, again, yeah. for like learning to put systems in place. And then also for just getting started in real estate or any part of your life, really. Um, the One Thing by Jay Papasan. Very good. All right. How about some of your hobbies? Anything outdoors. I live in Colorado. I'm a typical Colorado girl. Uh, mountain biking, trail running, when I can, climbing. Cool. Very cool. Last question. What sets apart successful investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started? You know, I think, you know, several of the guests on the podcast have really talked about resilience and focus. And I think, you know, something that I can point out of a value is just really creating those win-win relationships. Um, Understanding that it's not a win-lose game, that you're not in it all by yourself. But, you know, how can you bring value to somebody, even if it's a realtor or somebody that you're paying, how can you bring value and create a win-win relationship? Because you're going to go so much farther, faster with partnerships. Yeah. So true. All right. All right, Whitney, this has been a fantastic interview. I really like how this turned out. Can you tell us for those who are fascinated by your story and want to learn more about you, where can they find out more about you? Yeah, absolutely. They can find me on Bigger Pockets. So feel free to message me there. Um, And also you can find me at ashcapitalllc.com. All right. And of course, we'll put links to that in the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 340. Again, Whitney, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been fantastic. This is David Green for Brandon, my best brother Turner, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R, today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.